If you want access to bonus episodes, reading lists for every series of Empire, a chat community, discounts for all the books mentioned in the week's podcast, ad-free listening, and a weekly newsletter, sign up to Empire Club at www.empirepoduk.com. Welcome to the brand new series of Empire with me, Anita Arnon. And me, William Durimple. It's very exciting, this. Very, very exciting. We've been looking forward to doing this. So, look, Russia, in this particular episode, let me just give you a little menu of what's going to come up, because we're going to be talking about the founding of Russia, the first czars. You'll hear about Mongol hordes, and we have the very best guest to talk to today. It is a strange thing because I've always sort of in my head called him Simon, as in the great Simon Seabag Montefiore, author of The World, A Family History of Humanity. It's an amazing, dazzling, huge tome of a book where you'll find many of the characters that we've discussed throughout this podcast series and so many more besides. And the Romanovs, the Romanovs. And the Romanovs. And (laughs) and we'll talk about many others of his books because he's he's got a great back catalogue. But you prefer to be called Seabag. That's right, isn't it? Well, everyone calls me Seabag except my parents and my brothers. <laughs> yes. Well, I, th- I remember when we first met, I called you Simon and you sort of did a little... Wait. <laughs> That's... I should, we should, we should fess up that Seabag and I have known each other for close on 35 years now, and he was always Seabag when, when I first yeah, knew him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, d- I actually never liked the name Simon. But the Russian Simeon would be better, so you mm. could try that, or Senka for short. Yeah, not doing that. Seabag it is. <laughs> Let's stick to Seabag then. Seabag okay, it is. Okay. <laughs> anyway, look, I, I want to know, because you have spent so much of your life thinking about researching and writing about Russia, where the fascination began for you. I think it began because my mother's family were Jewish refugees from from the Russian Empire, from Poland, from Lithuania, and from Odessa, various of them. Uh, When I was in my childhood, I was fascinated with these stories, and I began to study it. And I dreamed that one day I would either, you know, be in Russia or write about people like Stalin and Catherine the Great. And then, then, you know, at university, I did Catherine the Great, you know, enlightened despots. And then when the war started at the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991, I went out there and I was, you know... I was very lucky to, to witness many of the wars and to sort of to, to be literally lying in a ditch, seeing coups, wars, battles taking place and to know many of the presidents and warlords of that time. I remember reading your reports hugely enviously. You were right at the centre of things. And, uh... and, it was, and it was very exciting because, I mean, I think there's a great, tra- it's a, you know, I think there's no better training for a historian than to witness the fall of a great empire. And, and that, was, that was what we saw. But of course, what we didn't realise was the wars that I was covering, like in Tbilisi, in, in um, Abkhazia, in Karabakh, in, in Chechnya, in Grozny, I mean, they, they were pretty serious wars. And if you were in them, they were pretty terrifying. But they were nothing compared to what's happening in Ukraine. And of course, we thought that the end of the Soviet Union had been sort of semi-bloodless with these minor wars. But now, of course, we realise it went on for another 20 years and it's still going on. There was a nice article by Timothy Garton Ash in the Financial Times this weekend that uh, made the prediction that the continuing fall of the Soviet Union is likely to be the major political event in Europe for the next 40 years, he said. 
Well, it may well be. I mean, Russia is a very complicated empire. I mean, there are various interesting things. And of course, you know, the Ukraine war makes this makes this podcast, makes our conversation terribly important and interesting and relevant. And um, Sergei Lavrov, when he was when he the, the foreign minister, when he was asked who'd advise Putin to invade Ukraine, said, you know, he only had three advisors, Ivan the Terrible, Peter the Great and Catherine the Great. I, I have to issue a correction at this point. I'm not often wrong, but I was wrong in the last episode because I was on a school trip to Russia, but not when you were lying in a ditch in 1991. I got my days and dates in a muddle. It was 89 that I was there, which I did say the date, but I thought it was, I don't know, I got the Yeltsin on a tank thing and the, the, in, a, in a right old mess. And also the shops I talked about, I said they were the gum stores where foreigners could only go and buy nice things and everyone would want to trade with you. They weren't. They were the Berioshkas. The yeah, Berioshkas, and the Gum, that's right. the gum was the, great, was the, the great department store. Departments where everyone could go in, to, but it was Berioshkas. So, yes, I got my memories in a bit of a mess. And I was, and I was, all, I was standing next to those tanks that Yeltsin w- was... When I was nowhere near them. I've <laughs> 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 been two years before. <laughs> so, so, so I think that this discussion is very important and it is fascinating mm. that the phenomenon that, you know, we've all been fascinated with, say, the British Empire and its and its achievements and crimes and in fact there was a just there was a very real empire standing right there in Europe and when I wrote at the end of the Romanovs you know that you know the empire continues mm. everyone said to me when I when I wrote the, the Romanovs which was sort of eight years ago lots of people said to me you totally exaggerated that how could you do that you're just trying to promote your book and the importance of the Romanovs yeah who's laughing now AC bag who's laughing yeah. now yeah and it's just interesting how things turn out so so empire is very relevant and the real empire was staring us right in the face Seabag, mm. in our last series, we, we dealt very briefly with the kind of distant myths of Russian history when we were dealing with Kat Jarman talking about the the Rus and, and the Vikings coming down on those rivers from the Baltic to the Black Sea, slaving, founding slaving settlements and slave pens in what's now Ukraine and Russia. Uh, but we've left it there. So could you open today by maybe giving us a picture of what happens next in Russian history after those those slave raids in the Vikings in the what, 8th, 9th, 10th centuries? Yeah, our story really starts with, with Rurik, a character called Rurik, semi-mythic. We know virtually nothing about him. We know virtually nothing about this period. And much of it may be made up by monks writing um, the primary chronicles, you know, 300 years after the events that take place. But basically... Rurik is a semi-legendary Varangian Viking Nordic man who, who, who comes down the rivers to trade with, his, with rowers, with armed forces. And ultimately, these people, these, these Varangians, these Vikings, would merge somehow with the Slavic people who were also moving into this area. And it's, it's a process we don't understand. We don't know all about it. But we do know... Is it sort of slavers and enslaved coming together, or is it...? No, they're, they're trading in furs, they're trading in, in slaves. Slaves, I mean, what, the one thing when you, when you, when you read the, the world of family history is that you realise that slavery is like an omnipresent part of all societies until the mid-19th century. And so they were trading slaves. The word um, slave comes from Slav, and Slavic slaves, blonde slaves, were sold throughout Europe in millions and the, and the slave trade which we'll come to later because you know part of our story in, in Ivan the Terrible includes one of the biggest slave trading expeditions ever in in um, 1572 
um, when they when they captured 150,000 slaves, apparently. We're going to come to Ivan the Terrible, yeah. but I want to sort of start use a pivot point in another Ivan, Ivan the Great, because uh, he is this crossroads between the Mongols, basically in the 13th century, coming and doing their frequent smash and grabs in territory that you've described. And then this man comes along and says, right, like Gandalf, you will not pass. Tell us yes. about the, the lesser known Ivan. And he's already based in, in, in Moscow. Muscovy is the centre. I think just to sort of literally just to do this very in a very short way, Rurik comes down the rivers. He, 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 he settles in places like Novgorod. In, in 862, you know, he, he founds a dynasty, the Rurikid dynasty that ruled Russia until 1598. So all the people we're going to be talking about in the first part of this are the descendants of Rurik. His family takes Kiev and in 988, his descendant, Vladimir the Great, converts to Orthodox Christianity from paganism, um, sponsored by Basil, the Bulgar slayer, the Byzantine, the Eastern Roman emperor. From now on, these rulers and their people are Orthodox Christians, and the family rules these kingdoms united for a very short time. Then they break up, and different met princes in the family rule different cities. You know, there's, there's Vladimir's the biggest, Vladimir Suzdar, there's Kiev, and of course, there's Moscow. So this is where Moscow comes in. In 1147, Moscow is first mentioned. It's founded by one of these Rurikid princes, Yuri Dolgoruki, the long arm. He's an interesting character because when they found Moscow in 1147, as English listeners will know, it's just after 1066 in the Norman Conquest. His mother is Harold Godwinson's daughter. This is our, our Harold, yeah, not, not Harold Tadradus. Yeah, this is our Harold who's, who's killed at the Battle of Hastings. His daughter, Gaitha, probably is the mother of the founder of Moscow, which is quite a thought. So there's a very good English Anglo-Saxon connection there. So that's where Moscow becomes important. And one, one line of the family rules Moscow, the Principality of Moscow. And as, as we go through hi history, Moscow becomes the most important of these principalities, um, not Kiev, not Novgorod, and so on. And ultimately, we then jump to 1223, when the Mongols invade Russia. They slaughter and defeat the um, Russian princes, the Rurikid princes, in 1223, and then they come back in 1238 and they conquer all. They, they defeat all the Russian Rurikid princes. And for the next 200 years, the Rurikid princes, the great princes of, of Moscow, are literally just sort of henchmen of the, the Khans who rule from Karakorum in outer Mongolia at first. And then the Golden Horde, the descendants of Genghis Khan who rule from Sarai their capital. And quite often these Rurikid princes are invited out to Sarai and murdered there and somebody else is appointed Prince of Moscow. And the Golden Horde uh, have converted to Islam by this stage or are they still? Yes, they have. Over time, they, they start off as worshippers of um, the gold, great golden sky and Altai. golden heaven, Alta, all that. And then they convert to Islam. And so by the time that Anita is talking um, the time of the, uh, the Ivan the First, Ivan the Second, Ivan the Third, they are um, they are Muslim. They have themselves broken up into many smaller khanates. The Golden Horde is the biggest, and it rules basically Russia. And so gradually, the Moscow princes become very rich as fundraisers, as tax collectors, and as general sort of thugs on behalf of the Golden Horde khans. 
But also, they dream of freeing themselves from the Mongol yoke. Yeah, so I mean, they're getting they're getting stronger and richer, and, and it seems to me sort of biding their time. But at the same time, are the Mongols getting weaker and weaker? And what is what? And that's very important, isn't it? Yes, for a hundred years, the Mongols are all powerful, even when they break up into different empires. So there's the Ilkhans ruling what is now Persia, Iraq, and there's the Golden Horde ruling Russia, for example, and there's Kublai Khan and his family ruling China. So there's this the great empire is still very powerful. But as time goes on, after about 100 years, they start to fall apart and they start to weaken. And in 1380, Dmitry Donskoy, one of, the, one of the princes of Moscow, actually defeats the Mongols, who are also known, just to be complicated, as the Tartars. Right. They defeat the Mongols at Kulikovo, and that is the sort of first great victory that they win. But it's 100 years before they really get rid of the Golden Horde. But what is um, the reason uh, for the Mongol decline is, is what exactly? They just, you know, they peter out as empires do peter out, or, you know, you have a new generation that's not interested. You know, the, the clogs to clogs theory of, you know, people forget what, what brought them there. What is it? Well, they last 200 years, and the last of the sort of the, the Genghis Khan family is still ruling in Bukhara in 1922. Yeah. And, 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 and an offshoot of them is Tamerlane, which you know, who we'll come to in a second, who, whose family goes on to rule India as the Mughals, which again connects up with a wonderful podcast. Upcoming theories of Empire yes. Pod, most definitely. Well, Tamerlane's a fascinating character. But I think we should jump ahead now. So to, to, 13, to, to 1380 um, is the date that, that you know, is the beginning of the freeing of Russia, of Moscow, from the Mongol yoke. He defeats, he defeats um, a Mongol Khan, but within about two years... Being actually the Mongols are back, and it's a totally exaggerated date. And you know, Tamerlane ravages um, Russia in the in the late thirteen nineties, and and the Mongol horde again demands um, the, the payment of of tribute from from Moscow. And you've got to realise, by the way, Russia doesn't exist yet. This is Moscow. They're always called the Great Princes of Moscow, and Veliky Knyaz Moskovsky, and they. That's the state that exists now. Russia is a later invention, which we're going to come to. But another reason why the, um, the Mongols actually now have a sort of eclipse in Russia is the rise of another power, which is the combination of Poland and Lithuania, which is a vast state that at its height rules from the Baltic to, um, to the Black Sea. And that challenges them. And Moscow is somewhere in between these two very powerful states neither of which exist anymore. So there are lots of countries we're going to talk about in this conversation that don't exist today. I want to focus in, though, on, on the one character, uh, the lesser-known Ivan, the great, not the terrible. So what was he like and who was he and, you know, what, what made him special? He's a fascinating character. He's one of the giants of Russian history. He's an extraordinarily um, opportunistic, ruthless brilliant visionary. You see your face lighting up yeah. as, you, as you contemplate him. <laughs> yes, I mean, he has an incredibly tragic childhood. His father is, is Vasily II, Vasily the Blind, who faces a 25-year family feud. And in the process of this, uh, Vasily is blinded. A terrible thing at any time, but obviously in a time when, when, when rulers were expected to rule, to lead their armies in battle. And his son, little Ivan, is captured and is imprisoned as a boy of eight, away from his parents. So he has, a, he has this traumatic, uh, a traumatic childhood for a ruler always in, instills a respect for power, a sense of paranoid, vigilant security, 
and a will to control and to expand and to dominate. We see this later, don't we, with Peter the Great and, and so on. I mean, it's really, it's, it's, it's that Mark Twain quote, history doesn't repeat itself, but it all rhymes. And in, in Russia, there are so many, I mean, throughout yes. history, traumatised, terrified little boys who grow up to be extraordinarily either awful or just extraordinary, well, mostly awful, uh, you know, <laughs> leaders in their own right. Yeah, we should talk about, I mean, psychologically, that's, of course, true, Anita, but also there are echoes today, and that was something we should probably fake talked about at some point and just mention, is that the Russian state has no borders, has no natural borders. It's a vast Eurasian plain, um, which means that Russia, of course, can expand easily in all directions, but it also means it's always insecure. Its rulers always have a military duty, more so than any other kingdom in Europe. And it also um, has two key influences. We mentioned already the Byzantine um, connection and Orthodox Christianity you know, was led by um, the emperor and the patriarch in Byzantium, in, in um, Constantinople, the Eastern Roman Empire. Which, but in 1453, that vanishes, that falls to the Ottomans. And that's exactly the period that we're now talking about. So this is this the sad demise of the Paleologus. Um, but then then Ivan sort of t- says, right, well, I, I'm the man. And he steps forward and he says, right, I'm the head now of the Orthodox. So she feels that vacuum. Well, this happens with a marriage, doesn't it? Yeah, well, the other half of this, which I think is much more important, the Russians always, always emphasise this Byzantine. And Ivan the Great, who we're, we're talking about now, he emphasised it. He said... You know, the first Rome has fallen, the, the second Rome has fallen, now we are the third Rome, we will be the centre of the Orthodox world, and I will be the Caesar. And he uses the word Tsar. And this is where the beginning of the, this is where the, he's the first to really use the word Tsar. In case anyone didn't pick that up, Tsar and Caesar are the same word. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And later in German, Kaiser. But this is where he says, we are an emperor, this is an empire, and I am the Caesar, the Tsar. A much more important influence on Russia, which is not mentioned in, 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 in Russian history, it was mentioned much less, is, of course, that really these czars, these princes of Moscow, are semi-Tartars. They're semi-Mongols. Their army is, is a, um, a cavalry, mainly a cavalry force, with bows and arrows and crossbows, exactly like Tartars. Many of their soldiers are Tartar renegades. Much of their court is made up of... Tartar princes that they call Tsareviches, which are sort of sons of kings, sons of emperors, who are descendants of Genghis Khan, who convert to Christianity and marry into the aristocracy there. So he he takes on this notion that he is the first Caesar, you know, the first Caesar, but also the inheritor of the orthodoxy, that he's going to defend yes. it, even though he has this mixed bag of troops that are supporting him, which is which is irony upon irony. And tell us about his wife. Tell us about Sophie Paleologus and this extraordinary princess. What he does is he marries Sophie Paleologus, Paleologa, who is in fact, whose real name is Zoe um, in the Greek, who's been brought up in Rome, and she is the niece of Constantine XI, Paleologus, the last emperor of, of Constantinople, who dies and vanishes, his body is never found in the ruins of um, Constantinople. On the walls, battling yeah, they just to the find end. His, they yeah. find his shoes, isn't that right? The tragic story <laughs> the of his shoes, turn, the slippers turning up. Do yeah. they? Do they? I mean, they yeah. never find him. He takes off his insignia and throws himself into battle. And so she has been brought up. But she's um, the niece, right? She's the niece. She's been brought up in Rome, and the Pope kind of sponsors this this strange marriage because it's an all you know sponsors this orthodox espousal. She comes to Moscow, and even though we don't know everything about her, and, and some we may be exaggerating her importance given 
the fashion for exaggerating or promoting women in history, which is very important. She's clearly an incredibly able, interesting, intelligent player in the politics of this place, where she's arriving from the heart of civilization, Rome. Um, she's going to Moscow, to Muscovy, this kind of brutal and complex world that she knows nothing about. And she makes a success of it. And she brings much with her. Um, what, we, what exactly she does, we don't know. But she's certainly influential in things like Ivan decides to improve the Kremlin, the sort of 69-acre kind of um, castle, which is the centre of Moscow and still is, of course. And so thanks to her influence, they go to the Medicis and they bring over a whole lot of Italian, Florentine and Roman craftsmen and architects to improve and rebuild this kind of em em embellish the Kremlin. So the ro those red crenellated walls that you see now when you go to the Kremlin, that is a gift of Ivan and his, his missus. I mean, that's, that's that their... Is, that is their thing. And the funny thing is we think of them now as typically Russian, mm. those walls. But in fact, they were typically Renaissance. This is the Renaissance that comes to Moscow and they build things. They rebuild the Dormition Cathedral where all czars are crowned for the rest of Russian history. And Sebag, this is, this is to mark the defeat on the River Ugra of Ahmed Khan, the, the, the last of the, of the Mongols to really threaten Muscovy. Well, what's interesting about it, Ahmed Khan is, is, a, is one of these Genghizid um, princes, as you say, one of these Genghizid Khans. He marches an army into Russia, into Muscovy, and Ivan the Great goes out with his army and they sit at the, the, the Ugra and they, and they sit there and in the end nothing happens. So it's a battle that never takes place. But um, Armacon just retreats and goes off back onto the steppe. And yes, and, the, and of course this is a key moment because at last, you know, the shoe is now on the other foot, the worm has turned and Muscovy is now a rising power under this extraordinary person. One of the fascinating things about Ivan the Great is he's also known as Grozny. Grozny is the terrible. Yeah. He is the terrible, the grim. And he looked the stern. He looks very like his grandson, Ivan the Terrible. They're not portrayed smiling very often in their no. portraits. And, no. and just to finish, um, just to finish Ivan the Great, Ivan the Third, you know, he adds many, many of the other Rurikid cities and kingdoms to Moscovy. And it's now that Moscovy becomes a huge empire. It's massive. It becomes... It becomes enormous and they add places like Yaroslav, Rostov, Vyatka, and the most importantly, the Republic of Novgorod, which is a sort of semi-democratic oligarchical republic and which is a sort of state that shows there could, be, there could have been another destiny for Russian politics, which is very interesting. So by the time he dies, he's added massively and now Muscovy, Muscovy as the um, as British called, the British English called it at the time, is now a massive state with all of these countries. His son adds to it, his son, Valsely III, adds to the empire, and, but dies very young. And when he dies, his son, Ivan IV, Ivan the Terrible, is three years old. And he succeeds to the, to the throne, becomes Grand Prince of, of Muscovy. Well, let's just hold that thought for one second. It's a good time to take a break. Join us after the break for more with Simon Seabag Montefiore. Welcome back. 
Let's talk about expansion. And we're going to leap from one Ivan to the other. Ivan the Terrible. No, poor old the Great is forgotten in, in favour of the Terrible, who's so much more memorable. Is he terrible from the start? Why? I mean, when does he become uh, get that moniker? Does it come from the people? Does it come from himself? I mean, from the beginning, he's an incredibly impressive character, um, Anita. He's tall, um, he's striking, he's like, he's described as very like his grandfather, who we've been discussing. Can I read your description from it? Because it was like, yes. it's, like uh, it's almost actually it's like somebody would write if they had a crush on someone, forgive me, but you know, I can imagine. Uh, yeah, uh, lithe as a leopard with an aquiline nose, a sensual mouth, and flashing eyes. I'm adding this line, he's dreamy. Um, but, <laughs> how, are there many people who comment on his beauty at the time? Is that a, a big deal? And yet things are about to go so horribly wrong. <laughs> he's so pretty, but he's so pretty awful. Yeah. So in, 15, in 1533, Henry VIII is king of England. Um, Ivan, as a little boy, succeeds to the throne as a boy of, of, of a tiny boy. And his mother rules, Elena Glinskaya rules for a while, but she dies when he's about eight. And she's probably poisoned or possibly poisoned. And they've looked at, there's a lot of poison in this story. And they've looked at her body and there is a lot of poison in the body. Do they use arsenic, lead? I mean, what was the poison of choice? Yeah, I can't remember which the okay. poison is, but they mm. they checked the poison. Poison of choice. The poison of choice. And and the doctors, doctors sort of, you know, were basically um, prescribing such poisonous medicines that it's impossible to tell if she's been poisoned. But later on in, in, in Ivan's... Um, in Ivan's reign, we find people whose bodies actually show they have been poisoned. So he succeeds to the throne as a, as a child. He feels ignored. He runs around the Kremlin with a bunch of friends. He's said to torture animals, but, you know, that, that people normally describe um, later monsters as doing that in their childhood. But what does happen is powerful families dominate the Kremlin. He feels neglected and disrespected. He feels that the Tsar, the great prince, is a sacred figure. And as he grows up, his mother dies, he's on his own, and he, he grows up insecure, ambitious, a sense of melodrama about himself, a sense of theatricality, but also a sense that he is special, he is sacred. He is the sacred ruler destined to make um, the empire greater. And he grows up hating the interconnected baronial families, the boyars, as they're called, the boyar families, when he's a little old, when he comes of age, he is he is crowned in the Dormition Cathedral, the first to be crowned as Tsar of Muscovy. And I mean, that is an amazing moment because this is the first sense when we when we when someone is crowned Tsar. Yeah, I I just also again, you know, this sort of is important because yeah. if you are feeling that much under threat, and if you do think that, you know, people around you are being poisoned, what you want is your own close Praetorian guard. And he, he does that. He has basically a bunch of thugs around him as henchmen to do, you know, the protecting. I love the fact that their insignia shows their loyalty. What was it again? It was a, a dog and a broom. Is that right? Well, we're coming to that in a second because that is, yeah, that is exactly right. That's the Oprichniki and that is a fascinating and important part of it. So just very, very quick, because I know we want to get to that stuff. Ivan is, is at first incredibly successful he marries uh, successfully. He loves his wife. She's Anastasia Romanovna, and she, she, she is the first. She's the first Romanov. And he's incredibly happy with her. He has children with her. And many children die, but some, some sons um, succeed. And the eldest son, Ivan, also called little Ivan, is healthy and ready to, fit to rule. But as you can imagine... It's a hard thing to have Ivan the Terrible as a father, but we'll come to that in a second. <laughs> um, 
So, you know, everything goes well. And his first job, we talked about the Mongols. We talked about how the Mongol influence on, in, in the, Mo the Mongol Khan um, ruled every bit of land in the, um, in the state. And all of, even the great, the great landowners and generals were slaves. Ivan the Terrible believes that too. And this is a part, Mongol influence on the Russian autocracy is enormous and much greater than is normally given credit for, especially in Russian history, who want to promote the Byzantine connection. So he's growing up in this court. Um, he's, now, he's now Tsar, he's a young man in his teens, and he wants to, to continue the conquest that his grandfather began, Ivan the Great. So he raises an army, he creates the first artillery, he brings in musketeers, gut, people who use muskets, in other words, instead of bows and arrows. And this is which, quite early days of muskets. This is cutting-edge technology. It is. This is cutting-edge technology. He brings in lots of German and other Europeans to, um, to improve his armed forces. He creates an, artiller an artillery and he marches down to attack two of the great um, Khanates, the Mongol Khanates of the south. And he takes Kazan in great Kazan, time. He Kazan and, and then Astrakhan. And Astrakhan. And he takes those two Khanates, um, he conquers them, I mean, massacres everybody down there. I mean, is that par for the course? Do you always massacre everyone you conquer, or is this particularly...? No, because many of the family, many of these Genghizid princes, these, these Tsarevich, as they call them, um, join the court... And one has to, when one looks at the court of Ivan the Terrible, it's a semi-Mongol court, you know. And remember, Mongols are very different. They look different. They, 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 you know, they sound different. They convert to Christianity and they adopt names. So the Yusupov family, you know, who, the one who murdered Rasputin in 1916, you know, that comes from the word Yusuf. Yusuf, right. oh, Yusupov. Wow. I never um, connected many that. Of the, many mm -hmm. of those great families are called Cherkassky. That means they're, 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 they're royalty from, you know, from Circassia in the south. So many of his enforcers, many of his generals are in fact descended from Mongols. Anyway, he's incredibly successful. He comes back to Moscow and to celebrate, he builds St. Basil's glorious cathedral in Red Square. But at the same time, stuff, bad stuff begins to happen. There are many fires in Moscow. Straight after his coronation in 1547, Henry VIII has just died, of course. Um, there's a huge fire in Moscow. There's a riot, there's a rebellion. And the sense of fires burning all the time is a sort of plays into his insecurities, paranoia, his increasingly strange mentality. In, 15, in 1553, he has a mysterious illness. He very nearly dies. And as he teeters on the edge of death, everyone refuses to swear allegiance to his baby son, Ivan, whose mother is the Romanov. Mm. And instead, they tend to acclaim his, his, his cousin, Prince Vladimir of Starosti, who is an adult. And when he suddenly wakes up after this, he finds out this is the case. First of all, he's not right in the he head He doesn't off. take this lying down. He doesn't take this lying down. He gets up and, and he basically sees this as a trial of the elite's loyalty. And from now on, um, he, dis he distrusts everybody. You mm. have a very nice paragraph uh, in, your, in your Romanov book when you... you outline the different uh, ways he deals with his unfaithful boyars. And you mentioned yes. beating, strangling, sewing into bearskins is a good one. 
uh, and throwing to starving hunting dogs or cooked alive in burning stoves. Could you, I mean, just at the risk of repelling everybody, but we'll do it anyway, what does sewing into a bearskin do to a person? (laughs) Um, It's extremely uncomfortable, first of all. Um, (laughs) But the real point is it means that dogs think you're a bear and attack you. I see, and then you get ripped apart. It also very much favours crazy stuff. But let me just get, let me just, let me just jump to, jump a second. In 1558, he, um, he launches a massive war. So he succeeded in the South. He's still an amazing success. He's very young still. Um, he's in his 20s and he launches uh, the, the Livonian War. And the idea of this is to take from Poland, Lithuania, the Baltic Sea. Livonia is, a st- Livonia is the Baltic states. Livonia, you know, Lithuania, Estonia and Latvia. What's the distance between there and Moscow? I mean, what, what kind of area are we talking of his conquest? Well, many hundred miles, many hundreds of miles away. He marches there and he's fa- it's st- he starts off by having great successes. But the war expands um, exponentially. What, what he wanted as a regional war, just to get Poland, to get Livonia, explodes into this huge um, regional war, which takes 20 years. And though he has some successes, he also has some disasters and it begins to go wrong. And this is when he begins to distrust everybody. Um, many of his um, boyars start to, start to defect to the Poles and everybody, Sweden, Lithuania, Polish-Lithuania, the Teutonic Knights, all of them join in. And this leads to a disaster. By the 1560s, a whole lot of things start to go very, very wrong. In 1560, his beloved wife, Anastasia, dies. He suspects poison, of course. Probably isn't poison. It's probably that he's been dragging her around on his crazy pilgrimages as she's pregnant. And anyway, she, she dies. He distrusts everybody. And now he decides to launch an insane project, which is the, the beginning of his madness, um, Anita. And this is what you're talking about. Mm. He decides to divide up the kingdom. He says, Moscow, I can't trust you. He says to the boyars, I'm going to divide up the kingdom. And the Zemchina, the, the main part of the land in Moscow, will be ruled by a council that I appoint. But I'm going to go out to a regional, uh, regional country house and I'm going to rule from there and I'm going to create a state within a state and this state is the Oprichnina, and he creates this elite group of henchmen, the Oprichniki. These are the dogs and brooms guys yes. that I was yeah, so taken with. They wear all black. They, uh, they are heavily armed with swords and muskets. Um, they wear black. They have a dog's head and a broom on their saddle. And they are the Avengers. And, of course, your sharp historical um, listeners will know that this is very like the NKVD or the elite mm-hmm. KGB or the FSB in Russia, in modern Russian history, an elite group of knights who are avengers of the state to crush all disloyalty and all traitors and to kill them all. And now he launches all his, I would say, Baroque almost um, methods, complex well, you're not kidding. I mean, there's music, yes. there's, there's gouging, there's roping women and children together and throwing them under ice. There's... Yes. Um, Inserting hooks in ribs Ooh, and, and hanging people. Yeah. He's very into the rib thing. Now, this is an obsession of his. He's very into the rib thing where he put you, you hook through the ribs a hook into the body and then you hang people by it. Mm. But, but it, 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 he, he hunts down the elites. But of course, oftentimes he, he, he's not a complete fool and there is method in his madness. He hunts down anyone who could have a, a different um, loyalties he wipes out whole clans 
who are loyal to each other and, of course, can avenge each other. But, of course, it also leads to lots of people, more people defecting. He holds extravagant ceremonies of mass murder. You have a scene where he, he, he you arrive at a field and there are kind of pots right. of boiling water, hooks lined up and, and all his instruments of torture. Yeah. In 1570, they have this kind of oprichniki sort of orgy of death outside, the pagan field outside mm. Moscow. And hundreds of gallows and vats of boiling water and boiling oil are there. And all the Moscovites come out to watch. And many of them are killed personally. And he's killing his elite. He's killing his former foreign minister. He's calling all his ministers are murdered out there in this orgy of, of killing. And he also loves blowing people up. One of the things he does is gallops into someone's estate, puts them all in, a, in, a, in their house, uh, fills it with gunpowder, and then lights the light and gallops off, and mm. then and, and shout, Yahoo! Um, <laughs> and Huda! Huda is his great cry, as the bits of body blow up into the sky. Meanwhile, in his headquarters, it's a mixture between a sort of the Playboy mansion and, and an extremely ascetic, austere monastery. That's a complicated mixture. Yeah, that's a, that's an, it's a design choice. But. He, goes to, he goes to prayers. Everyone wears, um, everyone shaves their heads. Everyone goes to prayers. And mm. anyone who doesn't turn up in prayers is in big trouble, big trouble. But at the same time, he's having orgies with with courtesans and prostitutes. He's having gay affairs. At the same time? I mean, yes, it's, it's, it, it, almost on the same, you know, almost on the same day. The morning day. is given over to asceticism, then it's playboy after the afternoons? Or um, the... And, and of course, the more he kills, the more strangely plays. In a way, this adds to the mystique, his mystique. Mm. And he has a big gay love affair with Fyodor Basmanov. And that's also, of course, extremely scandalous in a very, very orthodox community. And, you know, at this time, in 1567, the English have now arrived and are trading heavily with this great... The Muscovy Company, who we've dealt with The Muscovy with Company, which you know yeah. about. The first chartered company, the first and corporation. At this, and at this point, he, 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 he feels out Elizabeth I to see if she'd accept him if he lost the throne. So he's constantly thinking about losing the throne. In 1570, as well as the massacre at the pagan field outside Moscow that William mentioned... Um, he also attacks Novgorod, which is which has always um, had an independent esprit, and he attacks it. He massacres thousands of people there. He pushes half the population under the ice, as Anita mentioned. He ties together men and women and children and pushes them under the ice. He loves um, drowning people under He's the ice. He's a psycho. He's an utter he psycho. Is now, he is now, I think you can say, semi-insane, yes. Semi? The, 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 a key thing happens in 1571 and 1572, which is that the Devlet Khan, the Giray Khan of, well, I mentioned, this massive power. Um, to give you an idea of how strong the, 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 the Khanate of Crim Tartary or the Crimean Tartars are, they amass now an army of 150,000 horsemen. That's a big army. So it's very powerful. You know, this is a, this is not a sort of, this is not really a middling European power. This is a major European power. And they, they, they take advantage of the chaos that Ivan the Terrible has partly caused. And they gallop up and they actually take the capital, Moscow, in 1572. They take the capital, they burn it, and they leave with 150, they kill it, they, they're supposed to have killed 80,000 people, but, and they're supposed to have left with 150,000 slaves. 
which they then take down. The biggest slave trade in the world at this time, the slave, the slave trade across the Atlantic is already is already started and is taking you know is 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 a huge um, business. At the same time, this is another one. This is the other great slave trade, and it's a slave trade that over time may have enslaved ten million people, but at this point. They leave with 150,000. I think the figure they always give for the transatlantic slave trade is 12 million. Yeah, 12 million. And this is something like 10 million. And it's, it's colossal. And what they do is these people are all sold in the Crimea, where the greater slave market in Europe is, takes place at Kaffa, in the Crimea. And that slave trade is enormous. And later, the Ottomans take it over and it funds much of the expansion of Suleiman, you know, Suleiman the Magnificent and all of that, which is taking place at the same time. So the Ottomans have a share, if you like, in, their, in, the, in the empire, of their, in the state of their allies, the Crimean Tatars. So they burn Moscow, they gallop away, and Ivan the Terrible realises he screwed up. This dividing of the thing, the war in Livonia, it's all screwed up. He comes back, takes power, kills all the Oprichniki, rather like Stalin was to kill his secret police chiefs, Yagoda and Yezhov. And he comes back to power and he does what he can to try and improve the, you know, try and, try, to try and rescue what he's lost. So he launches another reign of terror. One of the people he kills in this later reign of terror is a fascinating character, Dr. Eliezer Bomelius, who is his German, well, let's say he's, he's a German um, poisoner, and sort of a hierophant who has been in, also has been in London, um, the London of Elizabethan London. And um, he's been advising uh, Ivan the Terrible who to kill and giving him poisons to kill them with. Because Ivan by this point has killed all his cousins, all his Rurikid cousins, the princes, Prince Vladimir of Starosta. He's, he's poisoned them with, with cyanide. And an arsenic, and so, um, and their bodies have secretly been secretly, or in a kind of showy way, with like the gallows. Openly, he strangled the patriarch, um, the Metropolitan of Moscow. I mean, he um, really is terrible. He is terrible. <laughs> and then, then in fifteen seventy-five, a really extraordinary thing happens. He's told by one of his wizards, one of his hierophants, that um, the Tsar is about to die, is going to die on the throne. So he abdicates the throne and places on it a Mongol prince. Because if he's going, if someone's going to die, it's going to be him. That's yeah. his thinking. So uh, right. in October 1575, he puts Simeon Bekbulatovich, who um, is a converted Mongol, he puts him on the throne and he rules for a year, and then he takes it back again. But nothing happens to Simeon. He remains a great yeah. grandee. Something fascinating. That this is the Empire podcast. In the 1550s, Ivan has done something which is to have enormous significance. He's given the Stroganov family, a powerful family of traders, he's given them the right to expand across the Urals. Up to now, Muscovy, Russia, this early Rush version of the Russian Empire, only goes up to the Urals. Now the Stroganov family start to build forts and to, exp and to create their own private army and to expand into Siberia. Is this a sort of parallel to the Muscovy Company and the East India Company, a yes, merchant, yeah, merchant yeah, capitalism? Yeah, yes, yes. And so merchant capitalism is not only an English thing. I mean, the Stroganovs are exactly the same thing as a, a sort of, they have their own army, they have their own fortresses, and they start to expand. And they are fur trading and they are trading in minerals. And they start to expand and it happens, it happens incredibly quickly. Before you know it, they have, they have hired a, a kind of Clive of India type, Yermak the Cossack, 
and he has defeated in the early 1780s. Um, he defeats um, the Kuchum, the Khan of Sibir, which is a country, a Khanate, and they've taken Siberia basically. And now Russia, now Muscovy, Russia is expanding across Siberia, heading for the heading for the Pacific. So what happens to the succession? Ivan seems so very terrible. He seems to be slaughtering everybody and anybody. Um, I mean, is there a peaceful transition of power? What happens? No, he destroys everything he's built. Um, his son, his son and heir is Ivan, healthy and ready to rule. But um, Ivan suddenly starts screaming at his daughter-in-law and saying she's not wearing the right religious clothing. Um, she's not covering up enough as she's pregnant. And his son um, uh, attacks him and, and criticizes him, not attacks him physically. And Ivan um, turns on him with the staff of Zardom, which is a pointed metal staff, and strikes him through the head and kills his heir there and then. You have a nice passage, Seabag, where you write that he, he, he denounces himself. Ivan says, I am a sinner, a stinking hound, always wallowing in drunkenness, fornication, adultery, filth, murders, rapoin, dispellation, depoination, hatred, <laughs> yes. and all sorts of evil doing. It's all true. He's heartbroken, <laughs> but his daughter-in-law also loses the baby now. And oh, she miscarries. God, so, oh, so, God. so now... Right. In, in, in 1584, he dies. This is not dies. a happy story. He dies naturally, and he's succeeded by his weak um, younger son, who is simple of mind, unhealthy, and he's called Theodore the Bellringer because he's so religious. And, 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 so, and so, so he ruins the kingdom, basically. Okay, now we're going, to, we're going to again do the time travel thing because we're, we're sort of hopscotching from the people that we've found most utterly historical and also important um, in this foundation of Russia. You gave us a glimpse of a Romanov with Anastasia marrying into this crazy family. But you have Michael Romanov to 1613. I'd love us to go there. Yes. And his accession to this, you know, nutty establishment of filled with blood, gore and intrigue. I feel that Ita, we've been we've been outgored and out Oh God, totally. We are totally and out, uh, all our people in Kevinor, we thought we're the most bloodthirsty in history. And I, we were a children's our program mere compared sort of to world this. wildlife fund sort of fox savers and No, it's ridiculous. We're jumping to, we're jumping sort of almost twenty years now, but let's mm-hmm. do that. What happens in the interim is that the, 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 the great principality of, um, of, of Moscow breaks up. It becomes a failed state. It's invaded by everybody. The, the, the Tartars, the Swedes, the Poles, they even take Moscow. Um, the Russia's ruled by um, crazy um, imposters called the False Dimitris. And there were three False Dimitris. And the third False Dimitri is the baby brigand. And he's, he ends up in 1613 hanged, age three, from the battlements of Moscow. And now um, everybody realises that Russia is about to cease to, to exist and they look for a pure young king to restore the kingdom. And the person that they all turn to is a boy, a teenage boy, who is the first cousin once removed of Theodore the Bellringer, in other words, the son of um, Ivan the Terrible, and who is the great nephew-in-law of Ivan the Terrible. So he's the last person with a real connection Mm. to the old dynasty. And the old dynasty is finished. After 1598, there are no more Rura kids. But there's this this boy. And this boy is being hunted by Swedish and Polish assassins. And he's hiding at Kostroma, 
north of Moscow with in his a mum. monastery with his mum, the nun Martha. Yes, well, <laughs> yes, quite the nun Martha, yeah. And they do his father, Filaret, mm. who's also been forced to take the tonsure of monk, is in, in a Polish prison. And they arrive at Kostroma and they offer him the throne. And three times, him and his mother sob and refused the throne. It's even better than that. In my head, it is It is Monty Python. It is, he is not the Tsar. He's a very naughty boy. Bugger off. We don't want this. I mean, that, it, that's what it, it feels like, like to me. They're, yeah. they're at the Ipatiev Monastery. <laughs> the 13th of March, 1613, they beg him to, to accept it. And on the third time, he goes, OK, I'll be Tsar. Mm. You've got to realise it's not a very attractive offer at this point. You could say. <laughs> You've made you that say. point quite, yeah. quite You might say. It's not, it's not the best gig in town. Mm. The Kremlin is literally, it's literally a charnel house. The Kremlin is ruined. There's no silver, there's no gold, there's no palace, and there are bodies everywhere. It's been ruled by the Poles. But Michael, um, Michael Romanov, um, who, who's, t- who's very young, agrees. They march back to Moscow and they establish a new dynasty, the Romanov dynasty. And Michael is the first Romanov Tsar. And that dynasty lasts right up to 1917. It lasts up until 1917. And though we think of it as a cursed dynasty, it is the most successful family of modern times. And this, as Empire Podcast, you write the most successful imperialist family. The most successful imperialist family. And it's an empire that we constantly underrate, we constantly neglect. We're very obsessed with our own empire and we forget this is the real thing. Well, look, it's a a great place to leave this and we will begin our next episode of Empire with the Romanovs. Um, So so delightful. A barnstormer, Seabag, a barnstormer. barnstormer. Okay. Join us then for the legacy of Michael the First Romanov and what happens next. There'll be greats in there. Uh, Not so many terribles, but, you know, greats can be terrible too. But join us on Thursday. That's it from me, Anita Arnon. And me, William Drimple.